started here. 6.30, let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump in here to Ezekiel, finishing up Ezekiel this evening. Lord, we give you thanks for your blessings to us. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to look at your word. We ask that we would be able to understand it clearly and uh, make sense of it and see how it relates to your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So you should have a sheet, and um, on that sheet, on the top of it, it says Ezekiel 33 through 39. Uh, just scratch that 39 out and put a 48 in there, I think, is what I intended Because we're covering this whole last uh, last part of the book. And uh, so this is going to be more of a bird's eye view. And hopefully we get done this evening. And then next week we're, we're going to go to the book of Daniel. Okay. And uh, found something very interesting. I think it's very interesting. And uh, Daniel... Uh, today that I hadn't seen before, and um, part of the, of course, you know, part of the challenge with the book of Daniel is that uh, we're so unfamiliar with the history that Daniel talks about that if you get too far down in the weeds, everybody forgets about the history. And um, so this week we're going to be at bird's eye level. Next week when we look at Daniel, we're going to get down into the weeds a little bit because something uh, I found very interesting that I'll share next week. So uh, Ezekiel chapter 33 is uh, where we're at. And this entire last part of the book of Ezekiel is about how the Lord is going to bless the nation of Israel. And as part of this blessing, the Lord is going to restore the nation of Israel. And uh, we can put it this way. He's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So chapter 33 kind of begins by setting the stage for what's coming in the later chapter. So that's, that's why I included it here. So in chapter 33, we have... Uh, Ezekiel being reappointed as a watchman. And uh, you see this in verse 2 and in verse 7. So verse 2 says, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. Verse 7. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So Ezekiel is a watchman. Now, if you hold your place here and turn all the way back to chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3. Verse 17 says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And it's basically 
the exact same words. And uh, so two times Ezekiel was said to be a watchman. But there's a big difference. Uh, the, he is warning them of judgment that is coming. And this second time in chapter 33, he's announcing blessing. Uh, so he's going to be announcing blessing this time. But that blessing doesn't come right away. Um, there's going to be some bad messages that he gives as well, or not messages of blessing. Um, but this is starting the process where God is disclosing the blessing that he's going to give on Israel. Um, so he's a watchman. Now, if you go towards the end of the chapter, about verse 21 there, um, the key thing to notice here is that uh, Ezekiel is now allowed to open his mouth. So if you look at verse 22, verse 22. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the man came who had escaped. That's talking about one of the survivors of Jerusalem. Okay, when uh, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, this is one of the survivors. And he opened my mouth. So when he came to me in the morning, my mouth was open and I was no longer mute. So uh, some time has elapsed since Ezekiel could speak to the children of Israel. And so now his mouth is open and he's going to be able uh, to speak. Now, you'll notice in verse 21, we have a date that's given. Twelfth year of our captivity in the tenth month on the fifth day of the month. So that is uh, February 9th, 585 B.C. And so you have that chart. I gave you that chart of chronological markers in the book of Ezekiel. And uh, so we're not going to go we're not going to go through these here this evening. But that's just a chart that you can go by. And I get the dates here from uh, Charlie Dyer and his dating in the book of Ezekiel. Okay, so he's done the hard work to figure out how these dates come over into our contemporary world. And so uh, February 9th, 585. 585. I think the, I think February. I think some people say January. Um, we'll take a month here or there. Okay. So um, just yes, that's for your own edification there, on your own time to look up those dates. Now, um, and and. In this passage, we see that he addresses two groups of people, those who remain in the land, thinking that the Babylonian captivity would be over quickly, and those who came together to hear him. So there's uh, two groups that he's addressing. 
those who remained in Jerusalem after the fall, after the fall of Jerusalem, not not the fall of man, but the fall of Jerusalem, refused to acknowledge God's judgment. These are unrighteous people. They uh, ate meat with blood, worshipped idols, and shed blood. And so these are these are people that uh, are not following the Lord. Um, so th- this would be the group of people that's going to take Jeremiah. You know, they kidnap Jeremiah. So that would be this group of people. Uh, those who gathered to hear Ezekiel were the exiles in Babylon. They would listen to the word of the Lord, but not obey. Uh, but the day of reckoning is coming, and each person would be held accountable for his actions and his response to uh, the word of God. So if you look at verse 32, so chapter 33, verse 32, Indeed, you are to them a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice, can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words. But they do not do them. They don't do them. So he doesn't have a real responsive audience here. So that's, that's, this is setting the stage of um, what the Lord's going to do to bring blessing on Israel. Now in chapter 34, we have the uh, false shepherds and the true shepherd. The false shepherds. And the true shepherds. And so these are being contrasted. The the false shepherd is being contrasted with the future true shepherd. So in verses 1 through 10, we're presented with the false shepherds. So the false shepherds are going to be the rulers of Israel, the rulers of the people. And you notice in verse 3... They do not feed the flock, but they feed themselves. So so they don't feed the people they're supposed to lead. They're just uh, feeding themselves. So their responsibility is to take care of Israel, and what they do is they use Israel for their own gain. Verse 4, they don't take care of the flock. In verses 5 and 6, uh, the flock is scattered because these shepherds weren't providing any leadership. In verses 7 through 10, these shepherds are removed. So God is going to remove the wicked leaders of Israel as a part of what he's going to do to bring about blessing. And then in verse 11, we're introduced to the, the future True shepherd. And uh, so God is going to be the true shepherd. He is going to be, um, well, Jesus says the good shepherd, right? So that uh, reference, what's the reference in John? Yeah, 10, chapter 10. That's right. So in John chapter 10, 
while we probably have read that and we think, oh, what a good story. Here's this analogy of a shepherd. It's uh, not really just an analogy. Jesus is going back and he's picking up from Ezekiel here with this good shepherd concept. So in verses 11 through 16, we find that God will restore the people to their land. And, of course, this will be fulfilled in the millennium. So we're starting to be introduced to some concepts here in these verses that... Uh, should draw our mind to the idea of the kingdom. Okay? So, uh, in verse 11, let's just read this. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them. So he says, I myself. That means he's the shepherd. Verse 12. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he's among his scattered sheep. So, keep in mind that the sheep are scattered. God is going to search for them. And if you got scattered sheep, what do you do with them? You regather them. They're scattered. They need to be regathered. So I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Verse 13. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. So uh, the Lord's saying, I'm going to get them, and I'm going to gather them, and I'm going to bring them back to uh, the land of Israel. And uh, so he goes on and he talks about that a little bit more. Then in verse 17 through 24, we see that God is going to um, judge. He's going to judge between the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay? He's going to judge between the righteous and the unrighteous. It says... In verse 17, as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I shall judge between the sheep and the sheep, between the rams and the goats. It is too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture and to have drunk of the clear waters that you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet they drink what you have found with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with, the, with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between the sheep and the sheep. So they were prey to the leaders, the false shepherds. That's who they were prey to. And I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, 
And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause the wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Remember, that's a key statement in Ezekiel. To know I am the Lord. When I have broken the, the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them, they shall no longer be prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. Thus, they shall know that I, the Lord, am with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, says Lord God. You are my flock and the flock of my pasture. You are men and I am your God, says the Lord God. So, here's a pretty good description of the restoration. And if you think about what the Lord's doing here, He is going to judge, and we've already seen this before in Ezekiel, he's going to judge between the good and the bad sheep. He's going to bring the good sheep into the land. They are going to have one leader, and the land's going to be prosperous, and they are going to be blessed. Okay, and just think about the description that we just read here, and you ask yourself, has this ever happened in history? It hasn't happened. Therefore, we have to conclude that this is going to happen sometime in the future. Now, notice in verses 23 and 24 that it mentions Millennial David here. Millennial David. Now, I don't mean that as like a distinct, different person. Just saying, this was talking about millennial kingdom time frame. And it mentions David being there. Okay, this is the resurrected David, not the Messiah. Okay, so when it says, my servant David in verse 23, and then it says, my servant David, a prince among them, this is talking about King David the son of Jesse. Um, in verse 24, David is referred to as a prince. Nasi is the Hebrew word. And if you just hold your place here and turn over to 3725... You see another reference... At the end of the verse, 37:25, my servant David shall be their prince forever. Okay, same word, Nasi. Then a little bit later, chapter 44, verse 3. 
44, 3. It says here, as for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. Now, in chapter 44, it's talking about a new type of worship service, a new type of worship service. And uh, this prince that's mentioned here, I take as uh, David the prince, he's involved in offering sacrifices. Okay, we talked about a little bit about that before, I think. So the millennial prince is going to offer sacrifices before the Lord. Particularly, he's going to offer sin and burnt offerings. So there's no way that this can be a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, because he made one sacrifice and he doesn't make any more sacrifices after that. Hebrews 10:12. So the context of this extended passage. And what I'm talking about is from verse or uh Chapter 34 on through the rest of the book of Ezekiel, this extended passage. So you study this passage and you try to figure out who can this David, the prince, be? What does the prince do? You study the name David. How is the name David used throughout the entire Old Testament? We know that there's a messianic connection to David But those messianic connections are made clear. Things like a branch from David or a branch of David. A root or something like that is used. When the name David is just used without any qualification, it always speaks of the actual person of King David. And so this leads us to conclude that the actual historical King David, the guy who hit Goliath in the forehead with a stone and cut it off. He is going to rule over Israel in this time of restoration. Okay. So if, if we want to do a little correlation here, let's correlate some scripture here. If uh, you turn to Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12, at the beginning of that chapter, it says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So this is Michael, the angel who protects Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. So this is talking about the tribulation. And the, the people, Israel, shall be delivered 
not just everybody, but everyone who is found written in the book. Verse two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So this is talking about resurrection. So Daniel is talking about a resurrection and this resurrection comes after or at the end of the tribulation. Okay, so before the millennium, at the end of the tribulation. And uh, so it's entirely possible, it agrees with Scripture, that King David would be resurrected at this time, at the end of the tribulation, or shortly thereafter. And he's going to rule over Israel when the Lord restores the kingdom to Israel. Okay? So back to chapter 34 of Ezekiel. In verse 25, the Lord says, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. So what is this covenant of peace? Now, some take it as referring to the new covenant. Um, I'm not sure that this is correct uh, as this covenant of peace is made at the time when David will be ruling over Israel. I would tend to think that the new covenant actually gets fulfilled before that and that this covenant of peace then describes the uh, character of of the millennial kingdom, the character of the messianic kingdom. And um, it basically describes that the Jews will live in safety. They don't even have to worry about wild animals. Okay, Wild animals aren't going to mess with them. They can be out in their field. No bears, no lions are going to mess with them. Um, so they're going to they're going to be in complete safety. They don't have to worry about any Gentiles. They don't have to worry about any beasts or anything like that. It's just going to be blessing. Blessing on them. And <clears throat> uh, we also see that, um, that this period is going to be such a blessing that uh, the whole land is going to produce. It's going to produce its fruit. It's going to give up uh, what it, it yields readily. So this is, this is something of a reversal of the curse. Okay, remember, as part of the curse, the Lord says to Adam, because of you, the ground is cursed. And if I could paraphrase that a little bit, you're going to have to deal with Thistles and weeds from now on. So the ground's not going to give up what God intended it to. It's not going to produce the way it was intended to produce. Now we see in this period of restoration that the ground is going to produce. Okay, that's chapter 35. It's centered on 
the false uh, shepherds, and then the true shepherd and the kingdom under him, what his rule uh, will be like. Now, verses, or excuse me, chapter 35 through 37, we have the restoration of Israel, the new covenant, and the land. So notice in chapter 35 here real quickly that their enemy is destroyed. The enemy is destroyed and the enemy here is Edom. Edom uh, is probably being mentioned here again as a prototype of the foes of Israel. And uh, this judgment that Edom suffers is probably uh, just one uh, part of what God does to the enemies of Israel. To all those who oppose Israel, they're going to be judged. Okay, Edom's an example of that. There are three parts to this prophecy. Each of them end with, then you or they will know that I am the Lord. So if you look at verse 4, verse 4 ends with, then you will know I am the Lord. Verse 9, then you will know I am the Lord. Then verse 15, then they shall know I am the Lord. So Mount Seir that we see in verse 2, Mount Seir there represents Edom. So Seir is Edom's ancient name. And in verses 1 through 4, we see that they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed. And because of that, because this is going to happen the way that God says it's going to happen, the children of Israel should know that the Lord is there. The Lord's the one doing this. And verses 5 through 9, the second section... The judgment is because of their hatred for and their killing of the people of Israel. So verse 5, because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, when their iniquity came to an end. Therefore, this is verse 6, therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you. Since you have not hated blood, therefore blood shall pursue you. So this is the Lord saying this is what's going to happen to these people. He's going to, he's going to judge them because of the way they treated Israel. Then in verses 10 through 15, it says here that Edom's sin against Israel is actually a sin against God. A sin against God. Verse 10. Because you have said... These two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them. I will make myself known among them when I judge you. See, there, that judge, the judgment of these people brings Israel knowledge. Verse 12, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all your blasphemies, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They're desolate. They are given to us to consume. Thus, with your mouth, you have boasted against me 
and multiplied your words against me. Now I have heard them. So the sin of Edom is not just a sin against Israel. It's a sin against the Lord. It's a direct sin against the Lord. And so we, we see in this chapter that the enemies of Israel are going to be conquered. They're going to be defeated. They're going to be destroyed. And as we get to chapter 36, we see the people are blessed. This is the people of Israel that they're, they're, they'll be blessed. So it's kind of the opposite of chapter 35, the antithesis of chapter 35. When God intervenes on Israel's behalf, the mountains of Israel will be blessed, while the mountains of their enemies are judged. Ten times it says, this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. So in chapter 36, verses 1 through 15, we see that Israel's mountains will prosper. They're going to prosper. In verses 1 through 7, the blessing of the nation first comes with the judgment of all her enemies. So there's, there's this clear connection between uh, the judgment of the nations and how those nations treated the land of Israel. So it's going to start with the judgment of the nations. And verses 8 through 15, in contrast to the judgment that will be on the nations, the Lord is going to bless Israel. And there's a shift here from speaking of the land of Israel as an object to speaking about the people of Israel. So it's not just the land that's going to be blessed. The, the people will be blessed. So verse 8. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people, Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you and I will turn to you and you shall be filled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the houses of Israel, all of it, and the city shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast. And they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God. Because they say to you, you devour men and bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation any more, says the Lord. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations any more, nor bear the reproach of the peoples any more, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble any more, says the Lord. And uh, so again, this is going to be a very prosperous time. Then as we get to verses 16 through 38, we see that the people of Israel are going to be regathered. They're going to be regathered. And this is where we run into a statement about the new covenant. Verse 16 through 21 is a discussion 
of Israel's sinful past. Okay, we don't need to go over that. We've been over that several times. It's just about their sinfulness and what God has done because of that. In verses 22 through 38, there are three discussions of Israel's future restoration. Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And then, verse 33, verse 33, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be built. So that's the, that's the second section. Then finally, verse 37, verse 37, Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock. So there's three discussions of what uh, Israel's future restoration will be like. Now, sandwiched in the middle of this, in verses 24 through 28, is a connection to the new covenant. Okay, so let let me read this and and, uh, listen And watch for the language of the new covenant here. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people And I will be your God. So did you pick out any of these phrases or words that are connected to the new covenant? So in verse 25, you have this cleansing. You're going to be washed clean. Verse 26, they're going to be given a new heart. In a new spirit. Verse 27. He's going to put his spirit in them. So this is the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you. And they will walk according to his statutes. And keep his judgments. You might remember last time. uh, Was it back in chapter 20? Or something like that. Um, one of the things that the children of Israel did not do was keep the Lord's judgments and statutes. Okay? They didn't do that. He says, you're going to do it. And he's going to enable them to do it. And then in verse 28, it says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. 
So this is this is a reference to the new covenant, the new covenant. This is what the Lord is going to do. So now we find that in this uh, passage on the restoration of the nation of Israel, not only is there going to be a blessing on the land, not only the land going to bless the people instead of hurt the people, um, but the Lord is also at this time fulfilling the new covenant. He's going to fulfill the new covenant at this time so that as Israel lives in the land, they are going to, I would, if I could put it in the way Paul puts it, all Israel will be saved. (laughs) That's what he says. They're all going to be saved. So when they get, as they enter into the land, only believers are going to enter into the um, millennial kingdom. So this is all about what God is going to do. He's going to put them into this restored kingdom. Now, let's go to chapter 37, if we can. And here we have this picture of the nation restored. And I actually think chapter 37 is an illustration of chapter 36. Okay, it's illustrating the truth of chapter 36. So in verses 1 through 14, there's the vision of the dry bones being revived. So there's a valley of very dry bones. And in verse 4, Ezekiel prophesies to the dry bones. Verse 5, God breathes on the dry bones. He breathes on them. What do you think that is a symbol? Well, not just life. So he breathes on them as a spirit. Okay, he's given them his spirit. He breathes on them. And verse 6, flesh and skin cover the bones. Verse 7, the bones come together with a great noise. And then verses 11 through 14 tells us what this means. So let's look at this. Verse 11 through 14. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold my people. I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Now, that's an interesting verse there because it's possible, it's possible that there's no figure. uh, It's not figurative language there. It's not a figure of speech. It's talking about, it could be talking about resurrection. Okay. I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves. Okay, remember, who's he talking to here? He's talking to Israelites in the 6th century B.C. Okay, so anyway, that's something to think about. Just because you have this valley of dry bones, that, that illustration is over. It's over. And so in verse 11, it's not that illustration anymore. So verse 13, then you shall know I am the Lord 
When you have when I have opened your graves, oh, my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Uh, some some people connect this particular passage to 1948. The problem with that that I see is verses 13 and 14. Okay, this can't be a fulfillment of that. Because verses 13 and 14 tell us when this happens, you shall know I am the Lord. Most Jews in Israel. Okay, number one, most Jews aren't in Israel. So that's a problem. But even those that are, are not believers. So they don't know the Lord. But if this is talking about in any way, shape, or form, 1948, in the modern state of Israel, then they should all know the Lord. But they don't. You know, so that's that's a problem uh, that I that I see with that. I don't have any problem with uh, the modern state of Israel being something leading up to and connecting with prophecy, but I don't see it as fulfilled prophecy uh, here. Okay, uh, where are we at? Verses fifteen through twenty-eight. Now there's so you got the the. You get the vision of dry bones, and now you get the sign of two sticks. The sign of two sticks that uh, are united. And so this is, this is the symbol, this is the figure for the uniting of the kingdom of Israel. Kind of think of the bones as these are all bones that they're all separated apart. Well, we probably wouldn't say they're scattered everywhere, but they're separated. And now they all come together. Okay? And now you have these two sticks that are going to come together. So the house of Israel and the house of Judah will once again be united into one nation. And uh, there's a stress being placed here on the everlasting work of God. Look at verse 25, 26, and 28. Verse 25. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they and their children and their children's children, forever. And my servant David, we, millennial David, King David, shall be their prince forever. So forever. Now verse, uh, what did I say, verse 26? Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. So <laughs> this word, this concept is being repeated over and over again. Verse 28. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify, set apart Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. 
So this ever, it's an everlasting thing that uh, the Lord is doing here. And so if we would just back up a few verses and look at verses 21 and 22, um, I think what we see here is the fulfillment of the land promise. Uh, then this is verse 21. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all and they shall no longer be two nations nor shall there ever be divided into two kingdoms again. So now we're talking, this is kingdom language, right? So he puts the word kingdoms in here, saying there are not going to be two kingdoms, but one. Now, he doesn't say there are one kingdom, but that's the idea, right? There are going to be one kingdom. So now, this restoration that we've talked about, this blessing, is not just... Israel as a ethnic group of people that the Lord is going to bless in the land. They're actually a kingdom. Okay? And this kingdom is going to have how many kings? One king. So um, this is the one king over them. And again, I, I think that this is actually a reference to David, according to verse 24. And uh, this is just another reference to his ruling capacity over them. So I, don't, I would not, when it says, my servant David or David, my servant, don't take that as a veiled reference to the Messiah. I don't. I don't see any reason I have to do that. Um, if he wanted to say the Messiah, he could have just simply not said David, and he could have said my servant. And that would have been clear enough. Okay, from Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah was written before Ezekiel. That would have been clear enough. But he doesn't say my servant. He says David, my servant. So, not everybody agrees with me on that. Now, let's go to chapter 38 and 39. Real quick here, chapter 38 and 39. Here we see there is an attack repulsed. And this is an attack by Gog. So Gog, G-O-G, he's the leader. Magog is the land or the coalition that Gog leads. And we have uh, certain people groups that are mentioned here. And I'm not going to read all of these, but you have Rosh, that's people from the far north. Probably an area that we now associate with Russia, but Rosh does not equal Russia, okay? But that general, that northern area. Persia, that's Iran. Ethiopia, or Kush, that's literally Kush. Libya. That's literally put, P-U-T, and Turkey, which is Mashid, Tubal, Gomer, Beth to Gomara. So that's all Turkey that's mentioned there. So now you think about all that in relation to little old Israel. 
Rosh in the north. Where's Iran in relation to Israel? What direction is it in? East. It's to the east. How about Ethiopia? Southwest. What continent is Ethiopia in? Africa. Okay. Libya. It's over there too. Right? And then Turkey. It's just directly to the north. All right. Now, what's, what's south of Israel? Desert. <laughs> yeah, they're not they're not mentioned. So they're not gonna be that's not gonna be significant. Okay? So there's there's in that day there's not much out there. Okay. So there's gonna be this attack by this coalition of nations, and they're gonna be defeated. And uh chapter thirty eight, verse seventeen through the end of chapter thirty nine here. We see that the wrath of God is going to be revealed in an earthquake. And uh, this, the purpose of this is to re- reveal God to everyone. It says in verse 23, chapter 38, verse 23, Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself. Now think about that. Okay, this is your theology proper question. God says he sanctifies himself. Think about what that means. And, and I will be known. I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So you see all these actions of God. Some of them are actions of judgment and destruction. And others are actions of blessing on Israel. But the, part of what's happening here is an evangelistic effort by the Lord. Then they'll know. I am the Lord. They see all that. They'll know I am the Lord. Now, when we get to chapter 40 through 48, we have a new order for Israel. A new order. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going in detail to this stuff because... I already did that when I did a survey of the Old Testament, which is only about two years ago. It's all on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> so you can, matter of fact, I think, I think we took three or four weeks to do Ezekiel. Okay, so in chapter 40 through 43, we have a new temple. Okay, you have this new temple. And um, probably the most the most important thing you can understand about this new temple. I mean, you can read about the dimensions. Okay, we're not going to go into the dimensions, other than to say it's different than any of the other temples mentioned in the Bible. And. Um, some people take this temple as figurative. The problem I have with it, one of the problems I have with that is it gives dimensions down to the quarter of an inch. If it's figurative, why do that? Because if it's figurative, then, then what does that mean? What does that mean? 
So, but you can read about all the dimensions there, and uh, it'd be good if you figured them out all on your own and drew a scale model on a sheet of uh, poster board or something. Uh, it make it make your understanding of these passages uh, better, be a little bit different. But the key the key thing that I want you to see here is in chapter 43. If you look at uh, chapter 43, verses 1 through 12, you have the return of the glory of the Lord. That's the key thing here. That you got this temple is built in 43.1. It says, afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east. Okay, that's like the main gate. But more important than that, uh, the fact that it's at the east is because, is it back in chapter 8? Is it chapter 8? It's like chapter 8 through 11 or something when the glory leaves. When the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, is that right? Um, eight, that's somewhere back there. 10, 8, 9, 10. It's talking about that. So the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. What direction did the glory of the Lord go? East. Okay, so east is going to be an important location here. So east. Also, I want you to remember that when the glory of the Lord left the temple, how did it leave? Incrementally. It's like one step. Then stop. Then take another step. Then stop. Okay, it was, it was a slow procession, the leaving. Now look, look at back at chapter 43, verse 2. Behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the visions which I saw by the river Kabar. And I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces towards the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, Back in chapter 8, 9, and 10, it probably takes 30 verses for the glory of the Lord to leave the temple, leave the city. And here it takes, what, four or five verses for the glory of the Lord to return. So think of it like this. As the glory is leaving, it's a slow, almost hesitant process. It's as if the Lord doesn't want to leave. But when the glory of the Lord returns, it's all of a sudden. It's like a big rush to get back. Big rush to come in and uh, fill the temple. So that's probably the most important thing that happens in these uh, 40 through 43. is the glory of the Lord is returning to uh, the temple. The new temple, the millennial temple, Ezekiel's temple. 
Now, in chapters 44 through 46, we have a new worship service. A new worship service. And this new worship service goes along with the new temple. Okay, so the temple is radically different. This, this temple is radically different than any temple that came before. Different than Solomon's, different than, than uh, Zerubbabel's, different than Herod's expansion and renovation. Different. Okay? Um, and you can read it and you can tell the differences uh, right away. So in, in chapter 44, it talks about the, the temple ministers, the temple ministers. And uh, it talks about Levites and so on and so forth there. And chapter 45, in the first 12 verses, it talks about the land for the temple priests. So that's very similar to what we know from before in the Old Testament that the, the, the priests had, you know, they had their Levitical cities. Well, this, the priests have these lands. And then verses uh, 45, verse 13, all the way through chapter 46, it talks about the offerings. There will be offerings in the millennium. Okay, now there's some unknown involved with this, the offerings. But the thing that we should accept and affirm is that there's no problem there's no problem with these offerings there's no problem having offerings in the millennium just as we don't bring offerings for sins to be covered or anything like that anymore um, and this time, they're not doing their, these offerings to cover sins either. These offerings, the best view of them is to say that they're memorials. So just like our communion looks back, our baptism looks back on what Christ has done, it's best to see these millennial offerings as looking back on what Christ has done. Okay, it's just another way to do it. Um, and I would, I would tend to say, and I can be educated on this, but that this is probably, uh, as far as individuals go, it'll be individual Jews who participate in this. Probably not individual Gentiles. But I, I could be educated on that. I'm not, I'm not dogmatic about that. Okay, I wouldn't be dogmatic. I'd have to read this about ten more times okay, to be dogmatic. Anyway, something to think about. Somebody think about that and tell us next week. All right. And finally, when I want to close out here, verses 40, or chapter 47 and 48, it's a new land. It's a new land. So there's a river that comes from the temple in chapter 47. So you got this river coming from the temple. 
It comes from under the south side threshold, south of the altar, runs towards the east. The first one-third of it is ankle deep. The next one-third of a mile, it's knee deep. The next third of a mile is waist deep. And the next third of a mile is too deep to walk, deep enough to swim. Okay, so that's the temple. Right? That's coming out, or the river coming out of the temple. In chapter 47, verses 13 through 23, you get the boundaries of the land. Okay, so it tells us what the boundaries are. And you can compare those boundaries to those in the Pentateuch and in Joshua. It gives us the division of the land in chapter 48. Okay, and then it tells us about the gates of the city of Jerusalem at the end of chapter 48. And uh, let me just end with verse 35, chapter 48, verse 35. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. So this is, <clears throat> this is a time, it's all describing a time where the Lord's presence is in Jerusalem. Now, the Lord's presence left Jerusalem back in Ezekiel chapter 10. So all the way back in chapter 10, the presence of the Lord, when the glory of the Lord left uh, the, the uh, temple, the Lord's presence was removed from the city. And that goes all the way back to 592. Or is it 5? No, it's 592. BC. This is when this is when Ezekiel starts talking about this. And so the glory of the Lord is going to leave sometime between 592 and 586 when Jerusalem's destroyed. It's going to be gone and it hasn't been back since. Okay? There's no temple there, it's not there. When the uh when the Tribulation, temple, whatever that might be, whatever that like looks like, when it's put up, guess what's not going to be there? The presence of the Lord. It's not the glory of the Lord's not going to be there. The glory of the Lord doesn't return until the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Okay, so that was kind of a fast down. And dirty kind of way to go through those chapters, but you get the picture. You get the picture that is being presented to us, and that's the important thing. You get this picture that the restoration that the Lord is talking about here has never happened in history. Has never happened in history. If if you take these passages in any way as literal, if you interpret them normally, plainly, literally. This describes a time that has not happened in history, a time that has to happen somewhere in the future. Okay, and, and, and the Lord's going to do this. All right? He doesn't give us a lot of details about when. 
He only is giving us sequence. He's not telling us when as far as, you know, it's going to happen in, you know, 2145 or something like that. He doesn't tell us that. He just says this is the sequence, judgment and restoration. Okay, let me pray and uh, we'll be dismissed or take questions. Lord, we give